The Seahawks lost to the Rams in a game marred by bad offense, bad calls, and bad vibes. At 5-9, and nine, the playoffs are all but officially out of reach, bringing the franchise closer to some big decisions than they've had to be in a long time. Jackson and Mike chop up what has been, what currently is, and what's to come. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my wonderful producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We are doing, Jackson. It is a day, and we are doing. How are you? (laughs) It's about the same. It's you and me today, pal. And, you know, We've kind of been dancing around this junction of the season for a while. I think you and I were both holding out hope. We kind of mapping out a path for Seattle running the table or coming close to it down the stretch, getting a little help in the NFC, maybe keeping some playoff magic alive. That all got put to rest on Tuesday night. And now we've got a franchise facing a different direction than they've had to in a while. Yeah, I think that it's fitting that... Well, there have been a lot of touchstone moments of this season for the Seahawks, uh, many of which unideal, not according to the blueprint that yep. was laid before the before the year began. <laughs> but um, the two probably biggest ones came against the Rams, which is disgusting and fitting. It is. It is. They're, they're our foil, you know, and it's crazy because when Pete Carroll first came to the NFL, he created this system that took the NFL four or five years to kind of figure out. And then when Sean McVay came in a few years ago, he brought with him a design that is intended almost specifically to beat the Pete Carroll system. And, and, and we just see it. We see it every year. Uh, Russ has pulled out a couple of miracle wins against them, but they're the Seahawks daddy right now. Yeah. It's funny. You kind of have like the, uh, like the flow chart of like who owns who in the NFC West, right? Like no matter how <laughs> the rock, bad paper, their scissors. team is. Yeah, exactly. No matter how bad the Seahawks are, Shanahan and the 49ers just cannot get over the hump. You know, like the one, the one win of note was the one where the Jacob Hollister on the goal line for the division in week 17 in 2019. But other than that, like just despite the dysfunction, despite the, um, the buffoonery, the Seahawks, uh, are bona fide 49ers killers. So I appreciate that. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's funny because like this was probably the best defensive performance. I mean, last year when they, when they won the division in Seattle against the Rams, that was a very impressive performance um, for a multitude of reasons, but this was an incredible performance by Seattle's defense. And I don't think that should go unrecognized amidst all of the other shit. No, I I'm, I'm with you, man. And You're right. There is something that feels kind of fitting about it being the Rams that finally put the Seahawks in the dirt this season. And I think you and I both knew it was coming at some point, but we were hoping to prolong the inevitable. And it's going to be very, very odd to watch this team play three games that don't matter, really. They don't even matter for draft position. It's going to be a really unique time as a fan in terms of what we're looking for. And I'm glad you mentioned the defense. I want to circle back to that in a little bit. But sadly, the main takeaway for me from this game was that it swung on two really, really bad calls that went against the Seahawks. And as I said in the article, 
the only thing that I hate worse than bad calls is complaining about bad calls because I think that we tend to fixate on the ones that go against our team and assume that the NFL has it out for us or the refs have it out for us or whatever. And then we just sort of accept the bad calls that, that happen in our favor. I mean, we can acknowledge them in the moment, but then they don't really stick. Right. So, and I say that as someone where the Seahawks are literally on the wrong side of the biggest penalty call discrepancy in the NFL for five years. So I still hate blaming the refs, but the defensive holding call against bless Austin and the no call on the pass to DJ Dallas on fourth down had massive, massive implications on this game, on the outcome, and frankly, on the NFC playoff race. Given how the NFL handled moving the game, allowing the Rams to get healthy again, et cetera, et cetera, do you buy in that there was an angle behind these no. calls? Like, no. Like, let's 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 be blunt about this, right? Refs have been fucking dumbasses since the inception of the sport. Like, this is yeah. not something new. And, like, yeah, the calls were bad. But, like, the Bless Austin one clearly was not a hold when you're watching it in slow-mo, but like I can understand how a ref would look at that and see it as holding. Like it was a bad call, but yep. a little bit more, maybe not defensible, but like understandable in the moment. The DJ Dallas call mm-hmm. was like objectively really, really bad. Like that one was awful, yeah. but it's not an agenda. It's just dumbasses being dumbasses. Yeah. The ref way, the referee way. To- totally. And, and in the same way that super slow motion replays make even NFL athletes look super uncoordinated sometimes, Super slow motion replays do the same thing to referees and to officials. And I don't think that there was a slant there. It's easy to tell the story. Brand new stadium in LA, Super Bowl, wanting this Hollywood team to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. I, I get that you can tell that story. But frankly, I think it just comes down to where the officials were on the field with those plays. The call against Bless Austin. That's from a right sideline official who is trying to figure out why the best receiver in the NFL this year got knocked off of his route against basically like a uh, uh, a street pickup, right? Yeah. I, and you see, oh, oh, okay, he got turned around. That must be holding. I get it. You look at where the ref was on the DJ Dallas one. He was completely obscured. He was behind Dallas on that call. So I could see how he doesn't see that Ernest Jones got there early and he got there early. I mean, that was objectively past interference. Um, the sad thing is, is it just cost the Seahawks so much. You know, it was the, the first one was a 10, 10 game. Both happened in the fourth quarter. First of all, the first one is a 10, 10 game and the Rams would have been punting out of their own end zone. Instead, they do what good teams do. They took advantage of the break. They got went down, scored a touchdown. And that's exactly it, right? Like the Seahawks have not been good enough in 2021 to overcome the ticky tacky stuff because it, like it happens yep. no matter who you are, no matter how good or bad, like you're going to get bad calls. You're going to have calls go for you. If it's against the 49ers and George Kittle's complaining or whatever, um, or against the Rams when it doesn't go your way. So like you just have to be good enough to overcome that stuff. And the Rams got an inch and they, uh, they took advantage. Like they're clearly a better team right now than the Seahawks. It's as simple as that in my eyes. They did. They, uh, yeah, and, and it's not particularly close. And the thing that has kept these teams in the same conversation for me has been that Seattle's always had a big advantage at quarterback. 
Russell Wilson was really, really bad on. He was bad, game. man. He was really. I mean, like bad. I'm. Let's let's talk. Let's throw out his first three games back when, like, clearly he's just the ball's going who knows where. <clears throat> that was probably the worst game I can remember from Russell Wilson. Yeah, as you saw, it was like his. He's had his two lowest graded games according to Pro Football Focus of his career in like the last uh, the last several games in this stretch. It's, it's just bad. He's clearly not right. He hasn't been right for a long time. And it said, was it Pete said that Russ tweaked his ankle in that game as well? And it's like, like there's only so much, there's only so much that you can overcome. They weren't overcoming it anyways. And so you're just like adding right. more to the weighted vest, you know? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. It just. With lock it out too. Totally. And I'm, you know me, I'm big on vibes and bad vibes. Tough because they don't bad vibes. They don't vibes don't show up in the box score. Vibes don't fit analytics. I'm pretty pro analytics, as you know. Sure. Like I, I definitely believe they have their place in the game and it's a substantial one. But ultimately, these are human beings and very unique human beings that are playing this sport. These these are not the type of people that we run into on a daily basis. These are highly focused overachieving alphas out there and it's a human game and vibes matter i really truly believe that's the slogan that we're coining on cigar thoughts vibes matter vibes matter they do they seriously though and and seattle's always had great vibes great vibes the seahawks have always had great vibes that's been the selling point of pete carroll like i truly think that there is real value and having Pete Carroll as your coach because the vibes are so good with him and they've just been non-existent this season. I can't believe it for the defense to put a performance of that uh, ilk on film while they are entrenched in such horrible vibes makes it even more yeah. impressive. Like, what are you playing for at that point? Like why, what, what is giving you the motivation to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am going to I am going to put my body on the line to give this ball back to a quarterback who can't even like hit a stick. Totally. And you know, I I said during the Danny Kelly episode because remember the defense was really bad at the beginning of the season. They were good against the Colts and then they had like a month stretch where it was pretty rough and and they looked totally lost. And I remember saying if this defense is going to be bad what is the point of having Pete right, Carroll? Exactly. Right. That 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 was the saving grace. You can say, ah, yeah, you know, the play calling seems unimaginative. Uh, the clock management stuff, timeout management, fourth down, that stuff's annoying. But lots of coaches deal with that. But he could always put together a defensive scheme that's going to give your team a chance. And and that wasn't the case early this season. I was just done with it. The way that defense has played over the last three months now and especially in that game Tuesday night it's like bringing me back around a little bit that that is some masterful coaching in my opinion because they're doing it with a lot of guys hurt and they don't have a lot of top end name guys out there anymore yeah totally and I I think it was the last time that you and I um, were hosting an episode just the two of us where I was saying that if the Seahawks were to make a run this season and I wouldn't consider what they have been engaging in to be a run, um, a slight resurgence maybe, but definitely nothing contender worthy. But if they were to do that, it would hinge on the fact that Pete Carroll puts together an average defense. 
Because when the offense is firing on all cylinders, that's all you need, right? You just need like a league average defense to complement an elite offense. But the offense has not held up that end of the bargain. So for the defense to to come back, um, regain such form while the offense is doing them negative favors is is incredibly Seriously. impressive. Like it's a it's like a, a symbiotic relationship between the offense and the defense, right? Because last year when the offense was at its best, the defense was at its worst. And so it was like, okay, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg sort of thing? Like what's leading to what? It's kind of like, oh, well, Richard Sherman isn't good because of Earl Thomas isn't good because of Camp Chancellor isn't good right. because of Michael Bennett, like so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just like it's all interconnected and they just cannot find a way to get it going all at the same time. Yeah, totally. And what I'm really interested in with this defense is how sustainable is this? I thought this was the game they were going to get exposed from a process standpoint because they don't sack the quarterback. They don't turn the ball over. They have been subsisting on execution on third down and in the red zone. And they've been very, very good. I think they're top six in both categories. You know, at the beginning of the broadcast, Fox rolled out that stat that was crazy. And granted, they're using yards, which is not the best way to analyze a Not a fan a unit. of volume stats? Not generally, but you get this deep into a season, and it does provide a fairly accurate snapshot of performance. And you had the Seahawks ranking 22nd against the run, dead last against the pass, and dead last overall. Yet somehow, only fifth in points allowed, which is bananas. And I was... I remember just chuckling as I read that. I'm like, all right, this is unsustainable. You, you don't get after the quarterback. You don't turn the ball over. This is where you get exposed in LA with the Rams offense back on track. And instead they were awesome and they did turn the ball over and they did sack the quarterback and they did really, I think in my opinion, only give up 10 points in that game. And it was so impressive how sustainable is this? I know we've talked about this before. I've been in the camp that you can't just keep being bad at pressuring the quarterback and you can't keep not turning the ball over and have a great defense. At some point, it's going to snap. And yet here we are. Well, that's kind of the key, right? They did pressure the quarterback. Like yep. that, <laughs> that's something that has been largely missing. Carlos Dunlap decided to make an appearance, you know, when he does. It's spectacular. Love those somersaults, yeah. man. Just works of art the best results um but yeah the defense was incredible and the rams uh owe that game i mean their defense played well obviously but um they owe that game to their best player taking over like cooper cup is yes unbelievable like that that was that was like a bona fide superstar just wrecking the game the defense seattle's defense was playing unbelievable football and they just went god mode like Stafford, that throw where Jordan Brooks was just like plastering oh Cup, God. right up, up the open middle of the field, just does. There's not even like any semblance of an image of somebody getting open there. He just throws it to the vacancy. No. Cups there, snags it, takes it in for six. Game's over. You know, like it was just a spectacular yeah. play. You know, that's something that I would just love to see Seattle do more. Sometimes, do you remember? the playoff game against the Eagles a couple years ago, and they had nothing working on offense. They couldn't run the ball. The Eagles were getting after Russ, and it was just a little disjointed. 
but they realized we have one really big advantage on this field, and it's DK, DK Metcalf. Metcalf. And he was a rookie, but he had nine catches for 160 yards, the touchdown, and the walk-off. You remember oh, that? Yeah. Where he, it was like screen. third and nine, yeah. he caught the jump ball, and he's throwing up the peace sign. He's 22 years old or whatever, and he's, he's waving everyone back home in Philadelphia, and you're just like, yes, okay, when all else fails – we have one guy that can just go do this for us. And that's what the Rams did. And it it killed me to see Russ miss that opportunity with Metcalf in this game. Because make no mistake, Metcalf was kicking Ramsey's ass on a bunch of plays. It is apparent how badly DK wants to beat Jalen Ramsey. Like you you've oh you've waxed poetic about it ad nauseum, right? Like it's your favorite matchup in football, and it is worthy totally. of that, you know? Like they are yeah. awesome. They are titans of the sport, physical, yep. like Greek gods clashing against each other twice a year, and it never disappoints. And never. It's just such a bummer that the quarterback is clearly affected and that what DK is doing is not coming to fruition in the way that he wants it to, or any of us want it to. Um, but yeah, it should not go um, under the radar that he found success again against Jalen Ramsey. It's not just a one-sided thing. He did. Going into that game, DK Metcalf had the last four touchdowns against the Rams. Like, he, he, he's he been doing it. And he had DJ two touchdowns. DJ Dallas said no more. Yeah. And he had two touchdowns in the game before that, in that playoff game that they lost last year. He scored both of the touchdowns. Like, DK has balled out when given the opportunity against Ramsey and make no mistake. I think Jalen Ramsey is the best corner player, the best cover player in the NFL. And what's not going to show up in the box score. Cause you know, someone might be listening to this and be like, how can you say he kicked his ass? He had six catches for 52 yards on 12 targets. Like that's a little over four yards per target. And granted, not all of that was against Ramsey, but what's not in there are two pass interference calls against Ramsey. This is a guy who gets called for like two of those a year. You got two of them in this game. That's 30 yards that doesn't show up. And then he had Ramsey beat for two touchdowns in that game. And and the throws weren't there. So that he was good Russ away from putting up like stupid numbers against Ramsey. I, I truly think that that's what this season is, right? Like it's it's one good Russ away. I know. I know. I'm, and I know where this is going. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this, right? A, a few uh-huh. episodes ago when we had Stacey Rost on, I asked the both of you what percentage of the blame for Seattle's record you would place on Russell Wilson's injury. Are yep. you you said what did you say like 50%, 60%? I said about 50%. Okay. Where where are you at right now? It's higher than that. You know, and it's funny, I'm I'm glad that you brought it up because that's actually an answer I've thought about a fair amount since I said it. And I think when I said 50%, I was trying to emphasize like, Hey, it's not just cause Russ is hurt. It's not like this is some great team. It's that now the flaws are being exposed because Russ isn't saving their ass, but you're right. It's probably 80%. I mean, I, I'm it is such 90. an easy I'm sell like 90 to 95 in like in within the, you could sell me on nine on their record being nine and five, right? Yeah. Now. Like easily. I, I just think, you know, yes. Like, the team has engaged in some questionable process for quite a long time. There's been a lot of good amongst that though, as well. You know, like mm-hmm. you're not, mm-hmm. you're not going to win. You're not going to contend just with a quarterback. Like there's, 
11 people on the field at all times. The quarterback is by far and away the most important of them, and he's been very good uh, to elite for a decade at this point, which certainly helps, I would say. Yeah, Uh, right. But, I mean, you can call it an injury or multiple injuries now to Russ, Geno starting, however you want to frame it. It's instability at the most important position in the game. And what coach, what team is going to legitimately contend or even win games with a legitimately bad quarterback. And that's what Russ has been. Right. That's what Russ has been. He is dead last out of the 29 quarterbacks that qualify um, with 100 dropbacks or more in completion percentage on third down. He's completing less than 46% of his passes on third down. Oof. It's horrible. They are bad. They cannot move the ball. There has not been, I like. I cannot think of a team that has found legitimate success with a legit bad quarterback. Like what is... What team is there that has like won? Like you can talk about, you know, the 2017 Eagles with Nick Foles, but Nick Foles threw seven fucking touchdowns in a game in like 2013. Like Nick Foles, yeah. despite his inconsistencies a, and failures, he was good staff, that year. He was amazing, you know, like like Bill Belichick right now, like Mac Jones. You know, he's carrying Mac Jones to the promised land, perhaps. Like Mac Jones has been really good too, you know. So it's like you cannot succeed in the NFL if your quarterback cannot play in rhythm at all. Like, you know, like spotty play, great. But like when you're that bad on third down, you can't hit balls, you know, like it's great if you're injured and you can like still loft those moon balls and let your receivers adjust, you know, in the middle of the field, Tyler Lockett's great. But when you have to fit that ball in down the sideline to DK, you have to put it in the one spot. There's only one spot to put that ball and you can't hit that. Then what are you doing? You know, you can't run a functioning offense that relies on the deep ball so well if you can't throw the deep ball. It's it's so true, man. And it's like it's they're all dominoes. There's no rhythm with this team. And a lot of it is one of my frustrations is, okay, yeah, the defense hasn't allowed a lot of points. They've been amazing at squeezing the field on third downs and in the red zone. But they also can't get off the field like there is value in just getting off the field and forcing three and outs and turning the ball over and. And what's crazy is like you give this offense that's learning a new playbook that has dealt with injuries, like you said, at the most important position. And then it's like you're going to go 20 minutes of real time in between possessions. And then you might go out there and go three and out. And then you sit for another 15, 20 minutes. Pretty soon an hour has gone by. You've run three plays. That is really difficult to stay in rhythm as a team like you have to have some of that and so how much of that is you know Russ being bad I don't think he's been good since the injury for sure but how much of it is just like these guys aren't clicking because they haven't had a chance this defense for as good as they've been at limiting points they've really really struggled at getting off the field and one thing feeds the other totally and the the fatal flaw of this team is the fact that the deficiencies on both sides of the ball magnify their counterpart. They do. They do. They're not covering for each other. They're exposing each other. Exactly. It's just making it worse. It's compounding on top of one another. It's just been so fucking uncomfortable watching this team. Every single game, it's just uncomfortable. Even some of the wins, it's just like, all right, great. You beat the Jags and the Texans. You know, the the two Niners games – were those those were good football games for sure but for the most part you're just like 
God, I'm going to sit down for three and a half hours and I might see like eight first downs from the Seahawks in that time period. Like that's hard to watch, man. It's and not every like single really... one of those eight are going to be just gut-wrenchingly difficult. I know. I know. Like I, I could live if, if there are these, you know, there's some fireworks and it's just like, Hey, the last big play went to the other team and they lost and it's not your year, but it's just like, man, everything they do looks so hard. Every time the defense gets off the field, it takes them 12 plays to do it. Every time the Seahawks score, it's because they had to convert like three straight third downs. It's just like, <laughs> where are the big plays anywhere in this Dude, game? The biggest play against the Rams was a play that there looked to be a 110% chance of a Von Miller strip sack. And he hit right. Russ's hand and he just sailed it up. And Gerald Everett just happened to be there. Like this is a precarious football. Team. Oh, that's the perfect word, man. That's the perfect word. And so it, it brings to... It, it, it kind of brings to the forefront this idea that like, okay, now we don't have this clear championship focus ahead of us right now. I mean, obviously that's what everybody on that team wants to accomplish, but it's not going to happen this year, which means the landscape then changes over, you know, by the time they're playing a game that actually has playoff implications again, it's going to be September of 2022. And a lot's going to change in terms of who's on the team, cap space, draft picks, blah, 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 blah. So now we've got three games that really don't matter. They really don't matter as far as positioning this team for the future. So what is it that you're looking for? What are you hoping to see between now and the end of the season? Not a second of it. <laughs> no, I've, um, I think I think that I would like to see some semblance of productivity on offense. You know, like you want to see that as Russ hopefully continues to get healthier, that he is still the quarterback that you want to hitch your wagon to. And I think that he is, you know, I think mm -hmm. that this has probably been a very difficult year for him. He's had difficult years before, you know, like 2016, he, um, Sue got his ankle in week one. Eli Harold got his knee in week three and, they somehow found a way to win the division and blow out the Detroit lions in a playoff game, you know? Yep. So it's like had to adapt before Russ's mobility is obviously decreasing over time, but like he's shown that he can win from the pocket as well. He just needs to be totally. decisive. He needs to play in rhythm, which he has proven he can do. He's not doing it right now, but I think that with, you know, a little bit more infrastructure, hopefully some better, um, injury luck, positive injury luck variance that, you know, that can be achieved. And, you know, let's, let's, let's talk through the elephant in the room, right? I think that you and I have had different opinions about Pete Carroll throughout this season. Yep. And I think that my statement to you a while back that I would be okay with them running it back with some key mm -hmm. additions, of course, that, that is mm -hmm. a pretty sizable asterisk, but um, I would be comfortable with them running it back because I really do think that this season is the result of really shitty injury luck. And that's not to that's not to detract from the fact that yes, there has been questionable decision making on a multitude of fronts for quite a long time. The drafting has been bad. It's been better recently. They have some young guys that are it has been better worth recently. retaining, holding on yeah. to and investing in. But um it has been very bad for the better part of seven years, eight years. And uh it's hard to overcome that. It's hard to overcome that when the depth is not good, the the impact players that you have are not true superstars, 
at least yet. They haven't developed into that. And that includes DK. I don't think that DK is a true superstar yet. I think he could be, but as of now, he's not. You know, like the production needs to be there for you to be a superstar, and you can blame the quarterback, but it's not there, you know? Totally. So, you know, I think the the Pete Carroll discussion is going to be the one that dominates the next calendar year for this team. And until there's a decision, because he's under contract for two more years after this one. So it would take, like, actual decisive action from ownership for that to change. It's not like, oh, hey, he's coming up at the end of his contract. Do you extend him? No, he's he's entrenched. And and Schneider is there through 2027, I think, which is crazy. And so it's going to take some deliberate action to change any of the three major pillars of this franchise, that, of course, being John Schneider, Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson. But it does feel like some sort of change is necessary. And, yes. and I think that one of the things that is tough for me is and we we talked about this recently is i understand that when someone hears me say or reads me write dissatisfaction with how this team has played over the last five years or so you're like well they're averaging 10 11 wins a year they've won two or three division titles during that time like how dare you complain about this and it's like i get it i totally get it it is objectively better than rooting for a bad team but how do we feel at the end of all of those seasons? Are we like, oh, man, like last year. Oh, that's great. They won 12 games, won the division, and then laid a fucking egg in the playoffs against a good team. Like, did we feel good about that? Do we want more of that? Because to me, that feels like I always like feel ceiling. great after Rams games, so yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, the Cowboys game before that, the Packers game before that, you know, like where they just show up and they – they just don't look ready. Like once it's time, okay, it's playoffs. If you really want to be a championship contender, you play your best football in these moments. And it's not like they're just losing. Like they have shown up and looked woefully unprepared for the moment. And to me, like, I'm just not satisfied with that. And when I look at why that is, it's not the quarterback to me. It is the, there is a disconnect between the coaches, the head coaches philosophy and the roster that he's helped put there to pull that off. That to me is frustrating. I think the Pete Carroll divide really does come down to, from a functional standpoint, what you put more stock into. Because all the stuff, the Monday through Saturday stuff, Pete Carroll is my guy. The offseason stuff. I love his press conferences. I love how he builds up his players. I love how seriously he takes health and safety protocols with a focus on his guys being available and healthy and ready. I love that they sleep track. I love that they do all the biometric stuff to get every little ounce they can. I love the energy and practice. All of these things are awesome. And when Pete Carroll's eventually gone, it's really unlikely that the next coach is going to do all of those things as well as Pete. So I get that. For me, when it comes to actually winning playoff games and making a run at the Super Bowl, you just can't be this bad on fourth down decision-making, timeout management, clock management. You can't spend all year getting out of your huddle late and not giving the quarterback more than eight or nine seconds to survey the defense and make changes if possible. You can't keep telegraphing what your defense is going to do over and over and over again and expect modern NFL coaches not to figure out where the weak spots are in that and how to check out of it. That, to me, it just provides a cap on potential. 
and I'm willing to risk the floor for a higher ceiling. I agree with a lot of things that you just said. Mm-hmm. Most of the things that you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth down decision making this year, <laughs> and and even end of last year, you know, like if your quarterback sucks on third down, like that doesn't mean that he's automatically going to get better on fourth down. Sure. You know? So sure. like I, I, I understand being a little more conservative, especially this year when your defense is the strength of your team, which is a very weird sentence to say out loud. Cause it has not been that way for, for quite a while. Uh, and, and to be fair to your point, the special teams has been good over the last two years. I mean, Myers had some missed kicks this year, but over the last two years, he's making 90% of his kicks. You have probably the best punter in the NFL. Like I, I get it. Special teams is important, but that's like supplementary in my eyes, you know? Yeah. Like if you if you have a great offense and a great defense and bad special teams, like whatever, you know? Like it's important, but um you you have to maximize the units that see the field the most. And I was listening to Steve Kerr uh on John Stewart's podcast recently, and he was making a, a lot of statements the, the the summarization of which would be that coaches are only as good as their players you know he's only as good as Steph Curry Clay Thompson Draymond um, Andre Iguodala and so I'm I'm totally with you that this team has a ceiling and it is a self-imposed ceiling I think that Pete Carroll the executive is the self-imposed like ankle weight of yeah. Pete Carroll the coach you know, he's taking the always compete philosophy too much to heart because he's competing with a previous iteration of himself. He's setting his coaching difficulty level to expert, you know, yeah, and that yeah, is yeah. not that's not necessarily what you should be doing. I think that I think that Pete Carroll has done a lot more progressive stuff than people want to give him credit for. I think that his early do down pass rates have increased every year. You know, he has given the quarterback the leeway. If anything, he's he's bitching right now because they're not running the ball enough and that's what their offense is successful at right now I, I i would push yeah i'd 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 push back on that i think they have some drives where they run I'm the ball really you. well it's still and a dysfunctional run game it's, it it's bad the offensive line is not good enough to support a run game that you lean on and that's i mean we're going to talk about this quite a bit i, I want to talk about uh the rashad penny pick um because because of his <laughs> quote-unquote resurgence but yeah man i i think that this year to to just to sum it all up, I think that this year is a really shitty year in terms of injury luck uh, that exposed a roster that was ill-equipped to deal with that mm-hmm. or play the way that they want to play. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that I would be fine with them running it back if they had a few key acquisitions specifically on the offensive line, you cannot go into 2022 with Ethan Posick and Kyle Fuller as your centers. Like that's just like is unacceptable there, in my eyes. Is there anything about it's cause I agree with you. Uh, it's also what we've been saying for 10 years. Sure. Is there anything about this leadership that gives you confidence that they can adequately address the, that offensive is exactly, line? that is exactly the next thing I was going to say. I think that, like you look at the Packers, right? We were looking at them as like, oh, they're wasting Aaron Rodgers' time. And we, we had talked about the Packers being kind of a blueprint for what the Seahawks could be, whether they transition into new leadership or not. I th- I am totally comfortable with the Seahawks pursuing a different coach. Like you prioritize Russ. It's, it's as simple as that. Sure. If Russ wants to run it back with Pete, then I am okay with that as long as they have the offseason that they need. But to your point, 
I don't know if they have that offseason in them. So, fuck, who knows, dude? I I am comfortable either way. I am I am playing totally. both sides so that I can be out in and, front of either narrative, baby. And, and, but to be honest, <laughs> I think that they're both defensible. I think they're they defensible points for either route that you take. Well, and it's important in these conversations to understand that like these things are not black and white. Like, sure. Honestly, when when you break it down, what the fuck do we know? You know, like we've <laughs> I know that Travis Homer kicks ass. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That. I think that's probably why they lost. Honestly, not enough Travis Homer. But you know, it's it's something, and 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 I do want to acknowledge that there are moments every season that bring me back around on Pete. I get very frustrated with certain things, and he's I a pain in the that. ass, man. He is a pain, in but the he's ass. a lovable pain in the ass. Oh my gosh, it's so great. And so it's it's something where like I just I want to feel like my head coach is on the cutting edge and and that's a that's a siren song too right because different doesn't necessarily mean better and just because something comes look at Matt Nagy bringing his version of the Chiefs offense to the Bears in his first year he wins NFL coach of the year as a rookie head coach with Mitch Trubisky because his offense was awesome and no one could figure it out and then you give the NFL one offseason and it's been pure malarkey since then like they suck and so it happens i think that had a lot to do with defensive regression i I don't think that the matt nagy (laughs) offense was really slicing and dicing uh it wasn't but it wasn't but it was but it was it was the best year of trubisky's career by a mile right and the thing is is like it's one thing to get good it is another thing entirely to stay good and to go back to the mcveigh example it looked like he might have got exposed. He, he was exposed in that Super Bowl. Where How many points did they score in that one? Um, let me count them on one hand. Uh, that's one, two. Th- did they score three? Did they get that high? They scored three points. Okay, they got all the way to yeah, three, three points okay. in a Super Bowl. Three points. But the thing is, like, okay, yeah, just like the Seahawks defense ultimately got exposed by Belichick and just saying, like, hey, we're going to take you want to give us checkdowns? We will literally check it down 45 times, right? And then that's just what teams do now. Seattle hasn't adapted to that on defense very well, in my opinion. McVay got exposed a little bit, and all he's done is reloaded, rebuilt, and now his offense is back to kicking ass. Of course, getting better quarterback helps and all that kind of thing, but that's what really, really good coaches do, is they can adjust to the adjustments. And the way this defense is playing, they have made some adjustments. They're not all the ones I'd love to see. I mean, feel free to run a stunt once in a while. Go ahead and disguise the blitz once this season if you want. But they have played I think that's infinitely better. I think they have played unfair. infinitely better. Why is that unfair? I think that they've done a pretty good job disguising pressures. I think that they've done a pretty good job disguising coverages. I think that we I think that we want to bash the results rather than the process because we're not necessarily looking back at the process all that much when we're watching the games we're in fan mode where you know like we, we aren't necessarily just watching the ball but i think that you're not giving the seattle's defensive coaching enough credit in terms of disguising their intent i'm i i might not be i might not be um i mean clearly they're giving up 20 points a game which is amazing in the nfl despite being on the field all the time um i just it's hard for me to imagine that a defense that really does disguise their intentions well ranks so low in pressure and ranks so low in turnovers because those are the things that disguising intention 
are designed to do. Sure. But you're you're right. I am probably selling them a little low on that. But it's it's not my main point. My main point is this defense has gotten their act together and they look really, really good. And if I'm gonna harp on Carroll for their failures in that regard early in the season, he deserves the same degree of credit for turning it around. So again, you know, I understand there's there is a big risk in moving on that they could get worse. Um, but you know, as far as things that we want to see for me in these last three games, you said you want to see Wilson get back to looking like the quarterback. You're like, yes. Okay. I don't even need to see him for get sure. back. I just want to see progress. Progress. Sure. Sure. Totally. And and I'm with you for the first time in 10 years. I'm like, yeah, I actually need to see Russ get better because while I'm still overwhelmingly convinced that he's the most important avenue to you know, immediate and intermediate success for this franchise. I am doubting it far more than I ever have before, just because the results have been bad for a while now. Microcosm of that, I need to see him connect with DK Metcalf. I need to see rhythm there. I need to see this. I mean, Metcalf is so exasperated right now, and I don't really want to see that change. Like, I I think what's going to make him a superstar, because you're right, he's not there yet. This season was his chance to become a bona fide NFL superstar. And he had like eight touchdowns through five games or six games or something like that. Like he was doing He was on it. his way. Yeah. And then it's just it's just broken right now. There's clearly frustration there. And I think the single thing, more than anything they do schematically, philosophically, the most important aspect to this offense being what we all think it can be is Wilson and DK establishing the type of relationship we saw during Metcalf's first season and a half where it looked like he could break every record. Yeah, I I am of the belief that the Seahawks will not be a true contender until Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf are like even an above average combination on third down, you know? Yeah. Like you you have to utilize your best and most dynamic players and they're not equipped to do that right now with the quarterback impacted how he is, which, which sucks. Um, and it really feels like the timing may just not work out because I know, like I said, it is very defensible to want a regime change. Like yeah. it's incredibly defensible. And like, if it happens, I'll understand it. And I hope they hire somebody that <laughs> is willing to do that, to do the forward thinking things that we'd like to see, to, to be aggressive, to be innovative, um, which I think that Pete Carroll has still done to a degree, but yeah, you know, some the vibes are bad, you know, and sometimes that's just what it comes down to. The vibes are really bad. It's felt like the franchise has, even though they've been good, it's just been kind of a malaise, you know, yeah. like just kind of gross, a little gross, even though they've been good. And yeah, I, I understand if, if the time has come. You know, there was something that Jake Heap said recently that I found really fascinating and, and was a little uncomfortable with how much I agreed with it. And and I think that this might actually kind of piss some people off who are listening. This is not my intent. I'm not trying to be dramatic here. But Jake Heaps, who was very accomplished collegiate quarterback, cup of coffee in the NFL, close to Russell Wilson, uh, host for 710 ESPN with Stacey Rost, and he said that he thought the best thing for the organization was instead of running the table, and he said this before the Rams game, instead of running the table and sneaking into the playoffs, was to lose to, I don't know if he said lose out, but to not make the playoffs. Because 
sneaking in through the back door and then losing in the first round, or maybe they get lucky and lose the second round, but clearly not a Super Bowl contender roster. It's purgatory. It is purgatory, and it gives you enough reason to say, you know what, we don't actually need that change. And if Russ doesn't get hurt, it things would be different, yada, yada. And and I was reading that, I was like, that's that's actually what I've been feeling. It's and it's a shitty place to be as a fan. You know, I'm not rooting for the Seahawks to lose. I hope they win every game they play. But when you zoom out and look you. over the next couple of years, it's like, yeah, it might be helpful to just have it burn down a little bit and and give yourself the room to say, okay, changes have to happen. This is an unacceptable result. We can't spin it. What are those changes? Right, exactly. I think it's giving yourself the perspective to make the decision that you need to make. Because even if that decision is we're okay and we want exactly exactly like if you go into the playoffs then it's just like you don't really have to think about it it's like ah we'll get them next time you know yep but if that is the right call that needs to be a call that you tirelessly mull over you know like they need to figure out if this thing is going to work if these people these human beings are going to mesh well together to create and it's a fucking cliche but it's true a championship environment you know because that is not what this is right now. No, it, it isn't. And I am, I won't say guilty because I don't think this is necessarily wrong. Uh, but I am someone who has definitely been like, go get playmakers, right? Like I want, I'll, if there's an exciting player to get, if you had a chance to get Percy Harvin, fucking go get Percy Harvin. Yes. He's awesome. Go totally get Jimmy agree. Graham. Draft DK Metcalf, you know? I was banging the drum for making the move for Allen Robinson. Like I'm into that. I think that great skill position players, I was in favor of bringing in Jamal Adams. I'm into that. I think you win with top end talent, but you mentioned the Packers earlier and you know, you and I have some organizational jealousy of green Bay and the way that they run things. And yeah, you can point to, you know, they had, they basically had a hall of fame quarterback at all times since the inception of their franchise. Totally. I get it. But like the way that they build their roster year after year after year is designed to make the most of that and to create this incredible amount of stability. So they just hammer the lines and cornerback. And every year they're like, oh, this will be the year they draft a wide receiver and they didn't. And what are they doing? And this and that they drafted, you know, I don't know that Jordan Love was the right move. I'm not saying they're infallible. But that year where it's like, okay, they need a receiver. That's like the glaring need. And they went out and drafted a quarterback and a running back with the first two picks. And I'm glad that you brought up the whole Rashad Penny pick, which, again, there was no way he was ever going to be worthy of that pick short of being Nick Chubb. But I get what's behind it because you we saw that Packers game. It was like Aaron Jones is awesome. He's a top 10 running back in this in this league. But the thing about running backs is you can't just unless they're Derrick Henry, you can't just give him the ball 40 times. And so how big of a drop-off do you have when you bring in the next guy? Well, the next guy's A.J. Dillon. And bringing He's in even a better. I, he might be better. Like, it's crazy. And that wears you down. Remember when we had Matt Nichols on, and he's like, yeah, it doesn't necessarily show up in the box score, but you can see the fight go out of the defense when you're just running the ball well over and over again. I do not want to sound like I'm that guy that sees no value in it. I just don't think Seattle's been very good at it, so they shouldn't focus on it as much as they want to. But winning at the football and then just drafting cornerbacks every single year, like no matter what, we're going to use a day one, day two pick on a cornerback. Like you can't have enough of them. 
I really, really admire that approach. Yeah, as long as you're not the Vikings about it. Um, but, fair. Uh, That's fair. The, the jealousy that seeps throughout my soul when I watch the Packers and their run game is just like, it's appalling. Because yeah. Jones and Dylan are awesome. And like I understand that it goes against you know the, the financial morals within the game of football to sign running back to a big second second contract but the value of having two guys like that when you have an offensive line to take advantage of them is monumental because running backs while clearly more replaceable than a lot of other positions they matter man like i i I will just like never never stray from that opinion and they matter because you need reliable foot players on the field mm-hmm. you need guys that you can trust it's like it's like uh kyle use right like he's a yeah. fullback you know and they gave him like what six seven million dollars a year when they first signed him in san francisco and everyone was laughing at him he's not a fullback he could, he's a tight end like yes. slot receiver running back fullback like he can do all of it and he is a reliable player and like so when you look at aaron jones and aj Dillon, you have two guys that are rotating the whole game Every single snap of the game, Aaron Rodgers has a guy in the backfield that he can trust, whether it's in pass protection. And who's fresh. And fresh, Who, whether it's um, out running routes, whether it's getting that yard that you need. Like, they have a battering ram and a dynamic guy. And I truly do understand a coach, in Pete Carroll's case, wanting two guys like that. In Dude, Chris 10 Carson years ago. Shod Penny. I totally get it. You just need an offensive line to do it. And uh, sorry, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. No, here. no, no, I go, just, go, I go. Wanna, I want to finish this thought. Um, How dare you interrupt me? Interrupt <laughs> yeah, you, motherfucker. Uh, I think that like even if you don't have a great offensive line, having a good to great running back is still valuable because you have to run the ball a certain percentage of the time. Like that is apparent. Of course, like, you have to run it a certain percentage of the time generally higher than it should be for a lot of teams, but like you do have to run. If your offensive line isn't going to open up as many holes in the ground game, you need someone who can maximize what's available. Someone who can take advantage of the limited space at a higher rate and in bigger chunks. So that's valuable no matter what, but you don't need an embarrassment of riches at the running back position when your offensive line sucks ass. And I'm not necessarily saying that Seattle's line sucks ass, but it's not even close to the It's true. And, and I, I just don't know that the scheme has ever really helped them out that much. And we've talked about there not being a fit between scheme and roster on this team earlier. I think that's really, really true with the offensive line more than any other spot on the field. But the thing that, you know, what that really drove a lot of the running backs don't matter talk was when you had exceptional running offenses, just churning through running backs. You know, Todd Gurley, Todd Gurley was like an MVP, crazy, putting up MVP numbers, like Ladanian Tomlinson numbers every year. And then his knee starts to go out, and it didn't matter who came in. They were putting up, you know, C.J. Anderson got picked up off the street and averaged like 130 yards a game during a playoff push. And uh, I remember when the Chiefs running backs went down, it was like, you know it didn't matter who was there Spencer Ware came in and was amazing and Sharkandrick West came in and was amazing Spencer Ware and then Kareem Hunt comes in and leads the NFL in rushing as a rookie and then he gets hurt and Damian Williams comes in and basically 
might've been the best player in the Super Bowl. And it's like, okay, those are amazing systems though. That you can't just, you can't just go and, and put that in. Like we've seen it in Seattle. Seattle is the perfect example of how different the running game is when Chris Carson's in versus when he's not, they are not the same offense. So some running backs do matter. Now there are systems that are good enough, at least for short periods of time where, yeah, as long as it's like an NFL caliber athlete, they're going to be successful in this system. But a lot of those systems are really designed around putting the running back in the best position possible and blocking to their strengths and throwing to their strengths. Seattle, Seattle's designed passes to their running backs never look good. I mean, their screen game is horrific. Doesn't matter who the OC is. I can't figure out why they can't run a successful screen. But they're also like, they've got some running backs. When Alex Collins is in there, you just can't slam Alex Collins up the middle over and over again. That's not who he is as a running back. Like he's they're a nice not, player, but he is not yeah. a guy that's going to carry the load. And it's like no. sucks because I like so, him a lot. I like the way he totally. plays, but he's not find, that guy. Find ways to get those guys in space. And 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 that, I think, is is the frustrating thing. And and then it makes the running backs look worse, I think, than, than they are. You know, because like receivers, running backs do need the system around them to be functioning. The Rashad Penny pick, bad. It was bad. Yep. Sure. Um, I think that that has marred the player, Rashad Penny, the player. The value is also important within the within the conversation about the Packers because what was Aaron Jones like a fifth pick, fifth round pick, sixth round pick, and AJ Dillon is a second, second. as opposed yep. to Chris Carson who was a seventh round pick, which is incredible value. Yes, but Rashad Penny is a first, mm-hmm. and you don't address the root of the problem, which is a poor offensive line, and you look to get a band aid. You know, it's kind of like. You know, they traded for Jamal Adams, not necessarily to be a blitzer, but then their pass rush was so anemic in 2020 that you have to rush Jamal. You're finding success, so, like, do it, you know? Um, It's Band-Aids. It's not solving the root of the problem. And the Seahawks, especially as Russell Wilson continues to lose mobility, he invites a lot of pressure, but, like, you need an offensive line, you know? And I was thinking, you know, for for a while – this is kind of segueing into another discussion that I want to have with you and um, and feel free to double back if there's something that you want to cover in the running back thing. But, you know, I would have been OK with all of the resources that they spent on offensive line and the draft. I would have been fine with them just going the free agency route, you know, like Brandon Shell. I think that like he's had a tough time staying on the field, but like he's been an adequate signing, you know, like when he's been. I, on the field. I like Brandon Shell. Yeah, and so like building your line out of free agents when you haven't shown an ability to draft and develop guys, right? like, yeah, sure, that is a valid response to like repeated failures. And so this brings me to something else that I just cannot for the life of me understand. It is their strategy in rostering cornerbacks okay. for a long time. And I think that it's honestly kind of worked out, you know, like if everyone's helped, like Trey Brown was a great pick. Trey Brown was an awesome pick and Sidney Jones, DJ Reed, you get those guys for, for pennies on the dollar. You know, they're, they're solid players. DJ Reed, especially, you know, that's like an awesome pickup. That's like potentially franchise altering uh, pickup, but you know, we've seen the, we've seen the, the jokes online for years. Like 
people keep mocking cornerbacks to the Seahawks in the first round and they're never going to do it. Like they're never going to draft corners in the first round. Yeah. Why? Like why? I know. Why would they not, why would they not do that? If this is a position that you are so confident in your ability to develop, why not go out and get the blue chip prospects? I think that the lesson to take away from getting Richard Sherman in the fifth and Brandon Browner out of the CFL and Byron Maxwell in the sixth should not have been that you can get those guys in the late rounds and then turn them into gods. It should have been that you need the gods in the first place, right? I like these agree. were players that redefined the molecular composition of their positions. And then we go out and get Therald Simon in the fifth, you know, Trey Flowers and like, after like witnessing a half decade of elite cornerback play, like, yeah, sure. Like it's never going to hit the same, especially when these guys are just guys, but I wish they would have invested more in the draft in corner in a position that is so clearly vital to this scheme. Like you cannot run your defensive scheme successfully without league average cornerbacks. And they just had, they have not placed the priority on doing that. And I wish that they would have funneled the draft resources they put into the offensive line into drafting like good corners and back to green Bay, you know, they draft Jair Alexander in the first and Eric Stokes looks like a great pick in the first this year. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, Kevin King before that and on and on down the line and well, Kevin King, Kevin King's kind of, he, been, he, he's he, been the he, butt of a lot of jokes. Been, he's been pretty funny to sure. watch. I won't lie. Sure. But, you're talking about like an ethos that they have. Exactly. Right? It's an, it, it's not mindset. saying like, Oh, the Packers, or you look at the other teams that draft really well year over year, the Ravens, the Steelers, the chiefs, these, it's not like they're going a hundred percent. Like, yeah, you're going to miss sometimes, but they're focusing their highest leverage picks on highest leverage positions. And, you know, offensive line is, is, a really interesting one. I think it applies to cornerbacks too. It applies to a lot of, of positions, but specifically for this conversation, we have this idea that like a good NFL player is then good at all of the things at their position, but it's, it's not true. You know, DK Metcalf is never going to run routes like Doug Baldwin. And there are some offensive linemen that are just much better moving forward than they are moving backwards or vice versa. And the same thing is true with corners. We get this idea like, Oh, you know, he's just a great corner. So just put him out there. But the way that Pete Carroll wants his guys to play corner is really unique. It's that kick step outside leverage. And you've heard lots of cornerbacks talk about how difficult it is to learn that technique. And if you can do it, you can be great in a Pete Carroll system. But if you can't, you're really exposed. Your feet are just messed up. And we've seen that so much over the last five, six years. You see replays on these easy possessions. And corners are just turned around. Is it because they're bad? Probably not. It's just footwork is really unique. Very few of them were ever doing that in high school or college. It's, it's a really one-off way of playing cornerback. And I think it, I think it takes away from the flexibility in what you can do on defense if you can't really just switch into man ever. And Seattle just never does, right? You can't. Can't run, you can't run zero blitzes. You can't bring guys off the corner. You can't do all of these things because in order to do that, you have to drop Benson Mayoa into coverage or Carlos Dunlap into coverage or have Jordan Brooks covering a sail route 25 yards down the field. And, and that to me is one thing that I wouldn't mind seeing a refresh on the defense is – Let's get some sticky man corners out there. Like if, if we are going to start investing high draft capital into corners, they either need to be people who 
already run that kick step system, and there's very few uh, college defenses that are doing that. Or you need to give them the freedom to just go be a great athlete. Yeah, I I just like look at their draft history at at corner, right? I mean, you have Trey Brown this year, you have uh, Ugo in the fourth round. There, well, mm-hmm. Trey Brown was a fourth rounder, also. Um, both of them good picks, I would say. You know, well, I agree. Marquise Blair in the second, he's had a pretty unfortunate run of injury luck. But Trey Flowers, you know, like uh, <laughs> Mike Tyson in the sixth round in 2017. You have. Uh, Ty Smith, fifth round in 2015. You have, again, Therold Simon in the fifth. Like The highest pick they've ever used is Shaquille, right? Shaquille Griffin was a third rounder in 2017, and that was the highest drafted corner that this regime has taken. And I just wish that they did not stay so steadfast in their beliefs, you know? Like, you had the 32-inch arm rule, the self-imposed rule, right? <laughs> And you see these guys out there right right now and these guys don't have 32 inch arms, you know, and there's still players like it. I understand the desire for these physical traits, but like other traits are valuable too, you know? And that's, that isn't to say that they've like completely shit the bed at the position. You know, like I said, I think that they're in a relatively good place right now, but you need more bodies and you need like, like to, to truly, to truly flourish in this scheme, you need good corners. You know? Absolutely, and and Absolutely. like the the most the most embarrassing defensive performances in recent memory would be the Bills game last year and the Vikings game this year, right? And after both of those games, you come out and it's just like, yeah, we like we just, the corners were just absolutely lost. Corners could not execute. That's it. And you're just like you're caught in no man's land in like zone schemes. You know, like you have to be like like a hive mind organism, yes. right? Like you need to understand your role because if you get caught in no man's land and let me tell you, Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan and Cliff Kingsbury are dedicated their entire lives to putting these guys, isolating them between yes. to make a choice between two guys to cover. You're fucked. Like there's no way, there's no way to succeed. There's no path to success. If your corners are not well-versed in the scheme and uh, able to carry it out effectively. You know, this conversation has put a finer point on what my issue with the defense is. Because you're right, I probably am selling them short in terms of, you know, disguising pressures and things like that. It's that they cannot go man if they need to. And I, I haven't been able to put it into words until right now. They can't switch up and just go cover people if they have to. You're right. This defensive scheme is 11 dominoes being set up. And if one of those dominoes doesn't fall or falls in the wrong direction, then the whole thing falls apart. And that's why you have Quandre Diggs screaming at everybody because he's trying to make up for everything. And I, I'm just imagining like it was, it was great. We saw what happens when everybody does have that mind meld that you're talking about. Cause we saw it with the Legion of bloom, but now it's like, okay, that level of talent clearly isn't there anymore. And there is no freedom to remember when we had Michael Sean Dugar on and he was talking about the difference between Trey Brown and Trey flowers and how Trey flowers was so concerned with getting his assignment, right. That he would follow his receivers, you know, out of a specific part of the field or, 
or whatever. Just be like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. So this is where I'm going to going to be where Trey Brown is like, Oh, the play is clearly changing. And he just snaps and goes to where he needs to. And he had that amazing play uh, in overtime against the Steelers where exactly he left his assignment because he had the instincts to go do it. And I think the hard thing about a defense like Pete Carroll's or Ken Norton juniors is it really makes it hard to play instinctively. You, you are so assignment based and I, I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more freedom and flexibility in that regard. Yeah, I mean, great players freelance when they need to, when when the situation calls for it. And the Seahawks have zero interceptions by a cornerback in the 2021 season. Oh Keeping, God, I mean, they had Sidney Jones that. had that pick against Arizona that got overturned. So, like, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that's like an asterisk. But, like, still, like, that's embarrassing. That's incredible. That that's is embarrassing. embarrassing, you know? And it's like... Like I said, like I I think that their process this offseason was okay. Like if they were confident in Trey Brown, which they should have been, um, that's that's great. You know, Sidney Jones is a nice pickup, but like I just wish that they had doubled down on the things that they are best at rather than rather rather than like trying to draft a bunch of offensive linemen like Terry Poole and Mark Lewinsky, who was I guess failed in Seattle apparently, but well, and that um, was that was the other thing, right? They they were converting everyone along the offensive line for years. Like that's okay, Cable will coach them up, and and it's just like you know it's okay if you got a good player staring you in the face to draft that player and then have them do in the NFL what made them draftable in the first place in college. Like so, Damian Lewis just like shifted the paradigm right. for me because I was just convinced that they would never draft a competent a competent lineman ever, you know. Like what was the what was the closest thing? You had Okung in 2010. They inherited Max Unger from the previous from the previous <laughs> regime. Like they haven't done shit. Like Jermaine Effetti, yep. like he probably wasn't as bad as people thought, but he was not good. This is this is Breno Jacomini. This is Breno oh, Jacomini erasure. God, Breno. That dude, I, I loved that guy. I really appreciated having like one guy that was just <laughs> sure, a fucking was... pest, you know? Yeah. Well, he's he's the guy that like he was Tom Cable. You know what I mean? Like he, he's exactly when you're allowed to like do all the grimy shit you used to be allowed to do as an offensive lineman. He was perfect. For you that. just know that guy could drink like crazy. Oh, it'd be so fun to go out with that guy. <laughs> totally. Shouts to Breno. Totally. Well, and, and I think that this, this brings back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's important to have a cohesive idea. And that's why I think this team needs to decide sooner rather than later, the sooner that they can put their foot in the ground with regards to Pete Carroll and John Schneider, they need to do that. Because if you guys are going to keep these two around, okay, great. There is a system in place. Let's hope that they approach their talent acquisition with the goal of fitting them into that system. But how you build your roster matters as far as like what scheme you're going to run. And if it is time to move on from Pete, and if it is time to move on from John Schneider, Ken Norton Jr., then you need to know that so that you have the freedom in the draft in free agency to go get guys that fit the next scheme instead of, well, let's see how it goes. And then you draft Pete Carroll. Let's just, just to play out a hypothetical, you draft Pete Carroll, John Schneider guys, you make bids in free agency for Pete Carroll, John Schneider guys. And let's say it's bad again next year. 
and maybe Russ gets hurt again or things just don't go right. And pretty soon you're three and eight again or one and four or something. And it's like, yeah, okay, we absolutely have to make the change. Well, now you've got a bunch of guys under contract for the next two to four years that don't necessarily fit the person that you bring in. So I really hope that they make their decision as far as leadership in front office sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, I hope they drag it out because I think that's like a really fun experience for everybody to watch (laughs) and deal with, you know? No, I, I, I'm totally with you. Like, I hope that whatever decision they make, um, again, both, both paths are understandable in my eyes. Uh, I hope they make it sooner rather than later. You know, like we don't know what, Jody Allen is going to do. We don't understand how she's going to operate within um, her executive role, uh, but she showed with the Trailblazers that she's not she's not scared to can someone's ass, you know. So, right. who right. we have no idea what's going to happen. I I just hope they make the right decision for the franchise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been such a bizarre year in so many ways, but in a way. Uh, it's made me even more grateful that we're doing the podcast because it's nice to be able to work through this stuff with you and honestly with a bunch of really smart people we've been fortunate enough to have as guests so far. Uh, it's certainly making me a smarter fan. Um, you know, one of the things that's great about this podcast is the stuff that we're talking about right now. Mike and I are texting this stuff to each other constantly. You know, it's not just like, hey, let's, you know, make sure our sound levels are right for the show. I love Mike because. I can just text him with, Hey, here's my thoughts on this, or he'll do the same. And, and I really appreciate this outlet because otherwise this has been a really difficult season for me to make sense of. And having this dialogue has been super, super helpful. So we really, really appreciate everybody out there that's been supporting this and and giving us an excuse to kind of come on air and and get the stuff figured out. Yeah. Um, I would also like to thank everybody for, um, you know, listening to the show so that I can transition from producer Mike into co-host Mike and then from co-host Mike into foil Mike just so I can constantly rib Jackson, hey, verbally I, joust him. No, man, I, I, I need it. You know, my my goal is not to have a take and then put it in cement. You know, I, I, I want to be adaptable and, and you're good at that. Like, it's something that I really appreciate is um, and I, I know you've bit your tongue behind the boards a lot this season. So I, I really appreciate these opportunities we get to just say, hey, you know what? Actually, I think you're wrong on this because that's how that's how we get better. And and for those of you listening out there, I want you to know we understand and appreciate how precious your me time is. There just aren't a lot of hours in a week where you get to listen to whatever you want to listen to. And the fact that you guys are making us a part of that really, really precious time means a lot to us. Uh, so thank you again for subscribing to the show reading the cigar thoughts articles and for spreading the love on social media. I mean, that's how this grows. And uh, we're super, super grateful for that. Speaking of social media, you can find me on Twitter at, at Jackson Devins. That's J A C S O N. Remember that no K is okay. And Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin show itself is at cigar thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at cigar thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks cigar thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fuelgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And we are now doing audio reads of every article right after they publish. So you'll have that for the Bears game coming up as well. And of course, if you do have a moment, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your preference. 
this type of support is what makes this worth doing. It's been amazing to see uh, that we have over 55 star reviews already, just being a few months into this thing. Uh, we've got big plans for this podcast. We love the way that it's growing and it doesn't happen without you guys. So thank you for that. We're going to finish up this season and it's going to be weird and we're going to have a lot to talk about. So make sure you're staying tuned. Make sure you're subscribed so you get the new episodes right away. Uh, until the next time that we're here, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh, 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 oh